The entire period of delay will be characterized by false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs, and demonic deception, all targeted at God's elect. See, Christ has told us this beforehand. Therefore, do not be deceived. The coming of Christ will not be secret, and it will not be known only to a handful of special initiates. It will be public and catastrophic, and you can be certain that you will not miss it. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. A lot can go wrong when Christians begin speaking about the end of the world. And yet, here in this passage, we see Jesus doing exactly that. He doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, but he does say a number of very important things that we would do well to pay attention to. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 24. Chapter 24 and chapter 25 together give us what is often called the Olivet Discourse or the Eschatological Discourse. The first title, of course, comes from the location and the second title comes from the content. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, to make any sense at all of this entire discourse, it is very important to take note of the two questions that the disciples asked. Question number one, when will these things be? Well, these things refers to the destruction of the temple that Jesus had just been speaking about. The disciples are asking, when will that happen? But they also, knowingly or unknowingly, ask a second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in the minds of the disciples, that was almost certainly one question. They could not have imagined anything more catastrophic or apocalyptic than the destruction of the temple. If the temple was destroyed in their minds, surely that would foretell the end of the world and the beginning of the world to come. Jesus, of course, knew better, and therefore he responded as if they were asking two questions, which they were, whether they knew it or not. He knew that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 would be catastrophic. Historians often refer to the sack of Jerusalem as the most brutal episode in Roman history. And yet, Jesus also knew that it would not be the end of the world or the time when the kingdom of heaven would be fully consummated. And thus his answer necessarily addresses two very different seasons in world history and must be heard very carefully as a result. Now, that isn't to say that these two events or seasons have nothing to do with each other. On the contrary, as William Hendrickson points out, these two momentous events are here intertwined, namely the judgment upon Jerusalem, its fall in the year 8070, and the final judgment at the close of the world's history, closed quote. Thus, the one near event becomes a lens for anticipating and understanding the other 
far event. Understanding that will help us a great deal as we make our way through this teaching. Verse 4, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Here, Jesus is clearly referring to events which are not associated with the end. They are preliminary. The disciples should expect a series of seducers and false messiahs, and they should expect a great deal of confusion and apostasy. They should also expect geopolitical upheaval. Such are the signs and movements of God's providential stirring on the earth. Verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, these preliminary events are referred to under the figure of birth pains. As any parent knows, birth pains may come and go. They do not always indicate that baby is near. Many is the young couple who rushes to the hospital at the first sign of labor only to be sent home for hours, days, or even weeks until the baby is truly ready to make his or her appearance. Disciples, therefore, must be discerning. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Here Jesus is warning the disciples that there may be a long delay before the end a warning he will pick up in the parable section of the discourse. The delay will be characterized by persecution and tribulation on the one hand and great and glorious gospel advance on the other hand. According to Jesus, we must also expect error and false teaching to lead many people into apostasy. And so the church is dying and being reborn, it would seem, in every generation. This will be very difficult and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In verse 14, he says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Thus, it would seem that disciples can, in a sense, hasten the day of the Lord, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.12, by engaging in the task of gospel mission. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because this feels like it should be the end point of the dialogue. Jesus just said, and then the end will come, but the end doesn't come, and the discourse goes on for another chapter and a half. So my head is spinning a little. I imagine many of our listeners are feeling kind of the same way. Can you give us another go-around in terms of how the sequencing of this passage works? Because every time I read it, I feel like I'm being twisted up into a knot. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. In fact, to be honest with you, if I were to make a list of the five most complicated passages in all the Bible to interpret, 
the eschatological discourse would definitely be on that list. Yeah, I mean, even that title is confusing, okay? <laughs> like, I'm not sure I'm not, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one out there that doesn't have a clue what that means. What is the eschatological discourse? Yeah, the problem with being part of a very old movement, as we are as Christians, is that many things in our movement received their names back when we were speaking other languages, like mm. Latin and Greek. The term eschatological discourse just means a sermon about the end. The word eschatological comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. So this is just a sermon by Jesus about the end. Yes, exactly. So, okay, but then why does it seem to have a couple ends? <laughs> it seems to end here, but then it keeps going, and then it seems to end again at the end of chapter 25. Well, some of that is style, and some of that is structure. In terms of style, Jesus summarizes the entire period between his two comings, and then he goes back in chapter 25 to tell a couple of parables that have to do with faithfulness during a time of indeterminate delay. That's called recapitulation, and it's a common feature of biblical literature. Okay, so review for us, please, the basic outline that Jesus gives in terms of what you call the long delay. Sure. So basically, Jesus says that the long delay will be characterized by the experience of birth pangs, events and experiences that shake up the world and facilitate the progress of God's redemptive purposes. Some of these events will be geopolitical in nature, earthquakes, famines, wars, and rumors of wars. And some of them will be more spiritual in nature, persecution, false religion, apostasy, etc., during this entire period, we will also see the completion of the Great Commission. So everyone will be saved by the time Jesus comes back? No, he doesn't say that, but he does say this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we expect that the message of the gospel will have reached the whole world by the time Jesus returns. Now, as to how many people will have responded positively to that message, the text doesn't say. All right, so that's the basic overview. Between the two comings of Jesus, we should expect birth pangs in the physical, political, and spiritual realms, all while the gospel spreads to the furthest reaches of the world, and then the end will come. Yeah, that's the general overview. And then in verse 15, we begin to hear about what D.A. Carson calls one particularly sharp pain. Right, and that's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, right? Yes, the destruction of Jerusalem, overseen by Titus in AD 70, is often described by historians as the most brutal episode in Roman history. And it serves in the Bible as a sort of lens for anticipating the end of the world. And keep in mind, Jesus made this prophecy about 40 years before those events actually took place. Hmm, yeah, I mean, that is really incredible. It is. I just read a book a few months ago when I was preparing for the Zechariah series in Into the Word called Jerusalem, the Biography by Simon Tafiori. And the story of the sack of Jerusalem by Rome obviously occupied a fair bit of real estate in that book. It truly was a foretaste of the end of the world. Montefiore there says, by the time Vespasian emerged as emperor and dispatched Titus to take Jerusalem in AD 69, the city was divided between three warlords at war with each other. The Jewish warlords had first fought pitched battles in the temple courts, which ran with blood, and then plundered the city. Their fighters worked their way through the richer neighborhoods, ransacking the houses, killing the men, and abusing the women. It was sport to them. Crazed by their power and the thrill of the hunt, probably intoxicated with looted wine, they indulged themselves in feminine wantonness 
decked their hair and put on women's garments and besmeared themselves with ointments and had paints under their eyes, these provincial cutthroats swaggering in finely dyed cloaks killed everyone in their path. In their ingenious depravity, they invented unlawful pleasures, Jerusalem, given over to intolerable uncleanness, became a brothel and torture chamber, and yet remained a shrine, closed quote. So Jerusalem had literally become hell on earth before the Romans arrived to lay siege to the city. This is who they became on their own a cross-dressing, murderous, rapacious mob inventing unlawful pleasures, given over to uncleanness, the whole city a brothel, a torture chamber, an idolatrous shrine. That was Jerusalem just before the end. And that's not my opinion. That's the historical record. Yeah, wow. That sounds a lot like Matthew 24 and 12 that says, quote, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Yeah, exactly. Lawlessness division, a posse, and then the end. Okay, and the parables at the end in chapter 25 are not new events in the timeline. They're just teaching stories about how to be faithful throughout all of this? Yeah, exactly right. Okay, I, I think I've got it. So thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. D.A. Carson refers to verses 15 to 21 as the sharp pain, the fall of Jerusalem, closed quote. In, in essence, we're to see everything from verses 4 to 28. So this, again, this, this sermon will only make sense if you have your Bible open. The Olivet Discourse is almost incomprehensible if you don't have a Bible open. So if, if you can listen to this while you're driving your car, or washing your dishes, I understand that. At some point, open a Bible and go through this again. It'll make so much sense to you. And in essence, what we're seeing here is that everything from verses 4 to 28 is describing the indeterminate delay before the great and climactic coming of the Lord. This whole period of delay will be characterized by persecution and difficulty, but it will also feature one particularly sharp episode of tribulation. Remember, D.A. Carson calls it the sharp pain, the fall of Jerusalem, which for some, some would argue, may function as a prophetic anticipation of the great and final tribulation immediately prior to the Lord's return. Now, while scholars do differ somewhat over the details of the specifics of this interpretation, it is a matter of record that the early church interpreted these verses as a warning to flee Jerusalem prior to the coming of the Romans in AD 70. The sign that this terrible pain was about to occur, the warning tremor, you might say, was the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. 
the, the in brackets there, let the reader understand, is obviously Jesus didn't say that. Jesus had hearers when he said that, not readers. That's Matthew's editorial comment. That's him, that's him saying, pay attention now, this Jesus is speaking in code figuratively. Daniel uses some version of that expression four different times. Chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 31. And chapter 12, verse 11. The expression itself is hard to interpret. So Luke, in his gospel, helpfully provides us with an inspired interpretation. In Luke 21, verses 20 to 22, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Closed quote. Thus, the text seems to be saying that when the Romans begin to march on Jerusalem, no time is to be spared. Run, for these are days of vengeance. These are the troops sent by the king to punish those who refused his invitation to the banquet as per Matthew 22, verse 7. So run. And church history tells us that a great many Christians understood this passage in precisely this way and were thus saved from the savagery of that terrible event. Verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short. If we're correct in understanding all of verses 4 to 28 as describing the entire period of the delay before the second coming with verses 15 to 21 as describing one particularly painful and possibly programmatic birth pang, then we must understand the those days of verse 22 as referring also to the entire period of delay. It will be a time of general tribulation. Not always so acute in one place as potentially in another, but always a time of opposition and difficulty. But thanks be to God, it will not stretch on forever. It will be finally cut short and brought to an end for the sake of the elect. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The entire period of delay will be characterized by false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs, and demonic deception, all targeted at God's elect. See, Christ has told us this beforehand. Therefore, do not be deceived. The coming of Christ will not be secret, and it will not be known only to a handful of special initiates. It will be public and catastrophic, and you can be certain that you will not miss it. The idiom at the end of the passage about the corpse and the vulture is very hard to understand, and interpretations and suggestions are legion. It may simply mean that it will be very hard to miss the second coming of Christ, preceded as it will be by such an impressive body count. Verse 29. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. These verses refer to the second coming. Note that it comes after the impressive body count and after the long delay and tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, scholars differ as to whether these signs are to be taken literally as astronomical phenomenon or in a metaphorical sense referring to great upheavals in the political and spiritual realm but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter the meaning and significance theologically speaking is very clear d.a carson says usefully here theologically this means that the kingdom is being consummated the standard the banner of the son of man unfurls in the heavens as he himself returns in splendor and power closed quote thanks be to god Verse 30 indicates that all people will see him come and will mourn if they are not prepared to greet him. The end is here. The door is shut and the master has sent out the reapers. Verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here, Jesus is saying that the preliminary events discussed in verses 4 to 28 are as the leaves of the fig tree. They indicate that summer is near. Thus, the preliminary events must lead directly into the long-awaited consummation. Verse 34 seems troubling to some people who wonder whether Jesus thought that the end of all things must take place within the lifetime of those to whom he was speaking. But that doesn't follow. Jesus is here talking about when the preliminaries must begin, not when they must end. The all these things refers to the preliminaries of verses 4 to 28. Everything characteristic of the great delay will be experienced by this generation, though they may not live through every single episode. In fact, 
Jesus says very clearly that no one knows the day or the hour of his coming. Thus, the end is not in view, only the beginning. Again, Carson is helpful here. He says, all that verse 34 demands is that the distress of verses 4 to 28, including Jerusalem's fall, happen within the lifetime of the generation then living. This does not mean that the distress must end within that time, but only that all these things must happen within it, closed quote. In essence, Jesus is telling his disciples when it shall all begin, not when it shall all end, which of course makes sense. How could he be telling them when it will all end? He has just said concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We jump back into the text at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, Jesus tells the disciples to prepare for an indeterminate delay. It could be very long, much longer than they expect. But woe to that servant who uses the delay to feed himself and to neglect his duties. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus ends chapter 24. Chapter 25 will provide still further parables exploring the reality of this indeterminate delay and commending faithfulness and fruitfulness throughout. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for today. As Pastor Paul mentioned earlier in our discussion, this sermon about the end carries on into chapter 25, and so we'll pick that up next Sunday, God willing. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.